doing that. Like, I'm all for, you know, before the day before the game, morning of games, you know, coaches, you know, getting the message out like, hey, we're playing, you know, come check us out. Right. This is every day. Every day he's made a point to this. I'm telling you, man, and as a person who knows about scheduling certain things out on social media and stuff like that and making sure that stuff, certain stuff hits at peak hours and peak times, I don't think we're grasping at straws when we say that Marcus Arroyo's tweets oftentimes look like direct correlations of his players' tweets. And it's just like go going back to Jacoby Whitman, going back to uh, Jacoby uh, simply saying Michigan State and dropping a pin. That's it. That's all he did. Mm-hmm. He didn't do anything else. He didn't say anything else. <laughs> and a couple of hours later, we get from Marcus Arroyo how proud he is to be in this city. How proud he is to how proud he is to uh, be coaching football in this city. And like I said before, I don't I don't think as many stuff as many things as people say. Our coincidence in life, I don't think half of them are. I truthfully don't. So the first hashtag for Marcus Arroyo being we, not me, I told you guys. I saw that and said, ah, he's salty. He doesn't want to say it, but he is. I mean, I don't see guys like Jim Harbaugh, guys like Nick Saban, guys like Kirby Smart on social media as much as Marcus Arroyo. At all. All three of those guys, by the way, are playing in the college football playoff this year. Can I ask you a question? And maybe this is going to be out of line because it's going to sound crazy. Desiree Reed Francois got Marcus Arroyo his his coaching position. Mm-hmm. She left for a Power 5 school. You think Marcus Arroyo is mad at her too? I think if I'm Marcus Arroyo, I'm very concerned about my employment with UNLV, especially – not so much in this off season, but maybe off next off season. I'm starting to worry because hopefully you would at least cross your fingers and hope that UNLV has a permanent AD by that point. Right now, they're still with an interim AD and in Eric Harper. Right. So, I mean, you could argue how much power Eric Harper really has as being just the interim guy. Currently, yeah, I know nothing, and I'm. I told you guys, I'll put my name to it. I think he has zero. That's kind of the feel I'm getting. Is he because he's got that interim tag? He's just keeping the seat warm. He's biding time, absolutely, until they can get the permanent one in. And and I think he should even be uncomfortable with the fact that as the acting AD right now, you're not going to be talking about the permanent guy. Because if I do this job properly, I am the permanent guy. I don't know. Everybody handles obviously their business differently. But uh, I, you're not the first person, and obviously I know for a fact that I've said it. We're not the first two that have said, what is he doing? Well, you look at Desiree Francois, her three biggest hires when it comes to bringing in money to the program or to the athletic uh, department as a whole for UNLV, all three have one thing in common. <laughs> and I'll, and I, I'll, I'm including T.J. Otzelberger because I, he, thought I, I included him too. None of them have a winning record. TJ left with a losing record. Kevin Kruger sits at five and five, so I'm not gonna. And Marcus Royal sits at two, two and, and eighteen. Two and eighteen. Two and wait, no, I was wrong. Two and sixteen. 
I would say two and sixteen. Yeah, six last year, twelve this year. Yeah, two and sixteen. You think if I was in front of Marcus Aurelio, he would have corrected me right now and said two and sixteen? I would have looked at him and said, oh, "That's better." Yeah, he probably would have, <laughs> and he would have done it with like the biggest smile on his face at the same time. I don't know, man. I don't think he would have corrected me on that. You you can't correct somebody on that. Um, <laughs> that's like saying you lost by fifty, and it's like, nah, we lost by forty six. Um. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I don't want to move from this because I'm not sure if we're done f- with this. Are we? I think we're 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 gonna hop right into the local news from um at the national level, at the professional level, I should say. But um, anything else on UNLV sports as a whole? I mean, it's UNLV sports at the end of the day. I don't know. True. I I think the performance on the court, performance on the field, performance now on social media, it all kind of. As you say, it writes itself. Yeah. But see, you talk about it being on social media. I told you guys, I've had somebody send me some posts from some of the players. And the nature of the message was... I'm trying to think of the exact word that I want to use. The notion that every time UNLV football took a loss, uh, we're building, we're building towards something, we're building towards whatever. The person that hit me up said that too many players have have begun to adopt Marcus Arroyo's Marcus Arroyo's response to losing. That's the way I'll say it. I think that that person's verbiage might have been a little rougher. But the over the overall encompassing point was now the players are starting to adopt his response to losing, which is next time, next time, next time. And the person essentially said sometimes they're not a next time. There's there 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 in itself lies its problem hmm. with UNLV. I'll even say UNLV athletics outside of a, a few programs in the athletic department that I think don't have this cultural problem. As long as UNLV football, as long as UNLV basketball have that same approach, particularly after a loss, nothing's going to change. I, I wish I could sit here and say it would, but if you really want something to change, especially when it comes to losing, Go see how things are done down in Tuscaloosa. Go see how things are done in Ann Arbor. Go see how things are done in Baton Rouge. Yeah, I guarantee that's not the reaction when those teams lose. Man, I've met some people from there. I've never been myself, but you don't even have to go that deep. Go to Oregon. Yeah. Even if, even especially coming up in the next few years, maybe even this year, as soon as this year, go to the Coliseum. 100%. 100%. No, when Pete Carroll was there? Definitely go to the Coliseum. Every game. Not only did they expect a USC win every game, double digits every game. Not even close. Reggie's going to rush for a buck 80. Like, everybody knew what to expect when it came to Pete Carroll and, and his Trojan War. Uh, shout out to 30 for 30. Um, You know what's weird? And... I didn't like. I, I don't like this. I told you guys before my experience with my first game here was the Howard game, and I kind of sat there, kind of befuddled on the sideline afterwards. Like, what? 
do I have to write about? Like, what what just took place? Somebody walked by, laughed, and said, first year, and kept going. And it didn't really register until it finally registered. And just recently, shout to Cerritos College because Cerritos College came away with the win in the Western State Bowl. And it got to a point to where uh, I was actually, I think I was looking at their basketball team uh, not too long ago as well, taking care of Ventura. And it, it, it dawned on me then. That when I was at Cerritos, obviously what I was covering with the basketball team and, and their run, even though they didn't uh, win it all, um, that one run that they did have when I was there, the football team is what what flooded my, my mind immediately. And it was mainly because, shot to head coach Frank Mazzotta, who I still text to this day, on Father's Day, just because of the way that he treated not only the people that was on the team, but the people that was around the team, which included myself. Um, coach Mo ran a tight ship. And I remember one my first season there, Coach Mo had 96 players on the roster. And I said, Coach, you have two football teams. Why? His answer had nothing to do with football. So if you guys don't know about head coach Frank Mazzotta, Frank Mazzotta actually is really, uh, really football royalty. And had I'm not sure anymore, just in general, just in terms of just the, the, the ties, but he had strong ties to the Gibbs family and used to be really close with Joe Gibbs. And Joe Gibbs actually – offered head coach Frank Mazzotta a spot on his coaching staff when he was coaching the Washington football team. And coach did, uh, declined, and he said he was going to stay where he was. And and Joe asked him, like, with all due respect, you're at Cerritos College. Why do you want to stay there? And coach said that he felt like the kids that he was in uh, encountering, he was encountering them at a certain point in their life for a reason. And he felt like that was more important than whatever was on the back end of an NFL coaching career. And that, that that meant a lot to me. And in that moment, the 96 players thought it, it came back. And I said, okay, so now I need to know. Why do you have 96 players on your roster? And he laughed and was like, well, it may be tough for me to remember certain names in certain moments because everybody's not going to play. We're, we're playing to win. He said, but unless a player just has a bad attitude, I don't cut. And I looked at him like he was nuts, and I said, you don't cut. Why? He said, because at the end of the day, this is community college. Even if these kids don't play, I know where they are six days out of the week. If I cut them, I don't know what they may get into. I miss that. I don't even know what that is. But I know that that was different. And I know that I have been searching from that for that since 2017 when I left Cerritos. Not super close with the volleyball team. I mean, with the uh, softball team. Closest that I'll say is Don Sullivan and her group. It's about as far as I'll go. Um, I guess now is the part where we talk about some professional teams from Vegas. Uh, 
you mentioned it earlier. You didn't go to the men's game, to the men's basketball game tonight because you had some other things to to tend to. You had a Dallas Star game to cover. Uh, what what happened during that outing? I'm gonna try and put this as nicely as possible. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. That was the worst win of the season for the Vegas Golden Knights. Oh, please tell me why. I'm going to, for a moment, disregard everything that happened in the third period. Run it. Have at it. With 12 minutes to go in the second period, Robin Leonard gives up his third power play goal of the of the game. He gave up his third goal on the power play of the game. Vegas was 0 for 3 on the penalty kill up till that point. All three times they went on the penalty kill, they got scored on. And they were staring down a 3-1 deficit. If that doesn't explain the problem, which, by the way, was the most in franchise history they've, they've done in a game. They've given up three power play goals. They've never done it until tonight. All by one player. All by pretty much one player, yeah. Well, given up, obviously, by one player right. in terms of between the pipes. We know, and for people that don't understand how hockey works, you've, you've and this is why this is beautiful that Matt is the person to talk about it in terms of hockey. Uh, Matt, you've talked about the defense putting Robin Leonard in, in some bad positions all season long. Um, but I, ultimately, he's the one between the pipes, so which is why we're always going to say that that particular person gave up whatever the case may be how much of it tonight i did see one person tweet shout out to danny smith who tweeted um are they pulling Leonard already that third goal wasn't his fault to that you say what at the end of the day you're an nhl goalie whether it's your fault or not you still have to try your best to make a stop on it disrupt the shot but I will say there were goals that slid literally right underneath Robin Leonard. You can't have that as a goalie. And I think the I I don't disagree with pulling Robin Leonard at that point. It's still three to one. Right. You get Lauren Brossois in there who for the rest of the game only gave up one goal. I, I think you're you're looking for more consistency out of your goaltending. And at that point, the game is still within reach for Vegas. It's not completely Gone. They're only down two. It's still pretty early-ish in the second period. You're only about halfway through the game. There's plenty of time to make up ground. Now, Vegas did a really good job of that in the third period. Before you get there, before you get to the third period, let's let's one more question about Robin Leonard. Mm-hmm. Somewhat rhetorical, I guess, this first one. His trade stock is dropping, obviously. Correct? Oh, it's... I don't know how much further it can drop. And that was my next question. Is his trade stock essentially non-existent right now? At this point, Vegas is stuck with Robin Leonard. Unless they just want to give him away. Because I don't know if there's a team Oof. team on the le- in the league that realistically wants to take a chance with Robin Leonard. Last question, and I'll let you get to the third period. When, Well, if and when Robin Leonard goes, Pete DeBoer is going out the same door at the same time, correct? You would almost have to imagine so. All right, let's move on. Whatever yeah. you you can you can stay on that, and then you can get right back to the third period. And my dad asked me this before Sunday's game. 
Okay. Because it it was actually a question that I think was probably posed at just the right time. He said, if you're Pete DeBoer, who do you give the nod to tonight in, in the goal? Remember, this is coming off of Lauren Persuat, who pitched a 7-1 game a couple nights ago in uh, Arizona. In Arizona. I said, you gotta, you got to ride with Brossois. You have to. He said, well, why? I said, because at the end of the day, I would rather know that I'm, Lauren Brossois is going to give up maybe one or two goals a game. I honestly don't know what I can get from Robin Leonard every night. I might get a guy that gives up two goals. I might get a guy that gives up five. And there hasn't been much of an in-between between those two. I know if I put Robin Leonard in the game, the offense is going to have to put up at least four to have a chance. Tonight they had to put up five. Matt, you're the, you're the newest person to the staff so far, and you're obviously the biggest hockey guy outside of maybe Alex. Um, Alex is you, – you've talked to Alex White before about hockey. I'm sure. A little bit, yeah. Alex is – her, her blood might be ice, trust me. Um – I need to know what's most frustrating as a fan. Like we we've talked, and obviously the the listeners, most listeners know when it comes to me, um, the thing that makes my undercarriage itch more than anything is a, is a bad strike zone. We've had this conversation before because mm-hmm. you can't move that. No. Like you cannot move that. Like just if it's if you if you're not gonna call anything at the bottom of the strike zone, don't call anything. But it gets taller. That's it. Yeah, it just can't get shorter at the top and at the bottom. So I say all of that to say, as a hockey fan, when you just said that you expect to to need two or three when it comes to uh, to uh, Brossois, Robin Leonard, and again, I don't want to say names, but I have heard names who or from people who I respect their hockey opinion. Anytime Robin Leonard is mentioned, we're gonna need to score four or five. So I need to know as a hockey fan, what's more fresh what's the most frustrating thing? Uh you can you can say either watching hockey or you can say watching the go tonight. Um are we talking about just being a general general hockey, hockey fan? I would say the most frustrating would be putting a goaltender in, whether you're a fan of a certain team, knowing that you're basically starting the game down two or three to zero. Because and I say that because of that's usually what that that goalie's gonna give up a game. Okay. That's probably the most frustrating. And in the case of the Golden Knights, I, I mean, you can go back to even this past off season, a lot of people, including myself, still believe the front office traded the wrong guy. Yeah. And I, I think the feeling in last season and really all the seasons leading up till this season when Marc-Andre Fleury was in net, well, we got a really good chance tonight. And that same feeling is not there with Robin Leonard. When Robin Leonard goes into the net, the only, I guess, positive thing you could say about the Golden Knights, well, there should be a lot of scoring tonight. May want to look at taking the over. That's literally probably the only thought that comes to mind consensus, like as a consensus amongst media, fans, et cetera. Cool. Bet the over. Bet the over. There'll be a lot of goals goals tonight. I can't tell you if the Knights are going to be putting up a lot of goals. I can't tell you if Robin Leonard's going to be giving up a lot of goals. Maybe it's a lot of both. But 
I think when you're looking at, and I said this, I think maybe on Sunday, it was definitely over the weekend. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> because it it was when Robin Leonard was getting the the bulk of the starts. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't think the the right the best goalie is even starting uh, the bulk of the games. The best goalie sitting sitting on the bench in Lauren Brossois. You said that Monday after the Calgary game. And I I still hold true to it because I look at even even tonight. Robin Leonard managed to give up three goals in twenty eight minutes of work. Lauren Brossois only gave up one the rest of the way. So even coming mm. into the middle of the game. After sitting 28 minutes for Lauren Brossois, not really getting any of the warm-up reps that the starting goaltenders usually get, he still only gave up one. Vegas' offense obviously responded well in the third uh, period to help propel them over the the hump. So let's talk about that now, too. Even that (laughs) is, man... Even that, while it's nice to see and it's nice to have as a fan, and you know, you obviously want to see your team win. Right. They have made that way too much of a habit this season. Hmm. Where they will get behind two, three goals, and then rely on either a late surge in the second or a really good third period. Right. That is not going to win you hockey games down the stretch. That is not going to win you playoff games. But this team has done b- both extremes over the past couple of seasons. We've seen this team be a slow starter, like you just said, and then turn it on to the end of the game. And then we've seen this team go cold to end game. So I guess my question kind of becomes which extreme is worse to you? Uh, I guess if they both results in losses, I guess it kind of doesn't matter. But, uh, again, as a, as a traditional hockey fan, which one is is – more overcomer, over overcomable, even though it's not a word, but yeah, you get my point. I would say if I had to choose which one to, to have as far as being the least frustrating of the two options, I'd rather my team starts fast. I'd rather my team start slow. Because Damn. at least okay. if you start fast, you know you're not playing from behind. The Knights, for the better part of tonight's game as a whole, really, at least the better part of 40 minutes, maybe even more, were playing from behind. Right. They never felt like they had control of the game. Hmm. Dallas, I think, drew the first blood on the score, on scoring first. Vegas equalized it. Dallas came back and they scored two two in a row. And right there when you, they gave up that second and that third power play goal, it felt like Vegas was chasing the game. And in hockey, it's really physically draining. It's mentally draining to have to consistently chase hockey games. Mm-hmm. When you have to, when you constantly look up at the scoreboard and you say, "All right, well, we're down two, we're down one, we're down three. It's a lot different of a feel than when you look up and you say, "Oh, we're up by one, we're up by two. You know, there's a different atmosphere. There's a different team feel to where you're either in control of the game or you're the one trying to gain control of the game. Vegas, for the most part, this season has been in games where they've tried to gain control because they've had bad first periods, mediocre to bad second periods, right. and then they, they have to make a miracle happen in the third. That'll win you some games here and there. 
But as I said earlier, it's not playoff winning hockey. You would know it better than me, but I would think that just in terms of anybody who wants to have this conversation at home, uh, my reasoning for saying that I would rather my team start slow and finish fast is because, uh, like I said, you would know better than me, but I would assume hockey is similar to any other sport. Losing multiple games in, like, heartbreaking fashion typically ruins the team quicker, I've learned. Because it's like you're you're that close, and – and that's what's so weird because me and my dad have always had this conversation. Would you rather make it to the postseason and lose a heartbreaker every year? Or would you rather go to the um, – or would you rather uh, have no shot at the playoffs? And my dad said that he would rather have no shot. Like he would rather just not make it. And I told my dad, and this is opposite of what I'm saying now, I told my dad, I'm never going to be that guy. Give me a shot. Like, give me a shot to do it. If if it goes the wrong way, it goes the wrong way. I would take Buffalo over Carolina any day of the week. Give me four straight Super Bowls. Like, you get what I mean? Like, I, I'll take that as opposed to, to anything else. And this particular time, I guess, in terms of, of hockey, what you said makes sense for the exact reason that I just said. Um, this is where I will kind of uh, somewhat shift the conversation a little bit, maybe just to one person. Kind of a cop-out, but it's the captain. Uh, Mark Stone played last season, injured. Ended the season last season, injured. Um, Started this season, and everybody did the same thing we did to end last season. He's not right. We see he's not right, still. And he takes more time away. This Mark Stone that we're seeing now, is the best Mark Stone that you have seen since? I don't know if there's a sense. I think this is the best of Mark Stone. And you even look at it tonight. As I mentioned before, for the most part, Vegas was chasing this game. Mark Stone tied the game up at one point. I think it was uh, the first goal. He tied it up at one. From there... That goal kind of, I think, piqued interest from a lot of Golden Knights fans. Like, oh, Mark scored. So whether it's a statement, whether it's just something to propel the team, there's a different feel on the ice when Mark Stone scores. There's a different feel when Mark's involved in the game. And it could very well have to do with the C on his chest. Mm -hmm. But I do think when Mark Stone's involved in the game, the team plays a little bit different. The team responds a little bit different. And I think that's all the credit in the world to Mark Stone, that he's gained that respect of that locker room. Could part of it be because when, I remember me and Alex talked about it when he was named captain, and I don't think it was even a question at the time. Mark Stone, and this is no disrespect to Mark Stone, you could still look at this Vegas Golden Knight team and say, despite his captain, you just mentioned it, his captain label to see on his chest. I don't think anybody has ever looked at the Vegas Golden Knight roster and said Mark Stone is the best player. No. I think it, you can make arguments in, in other places as far as being the best player on the Golden Knights. I think a lot of people would make the case for Jonathan so For sure. I don't know if that's necessarily... I don't know if I disagree with that statement. Seven shots tonight. <laughs> had another, had a goal again. Some might say 
people like William Carlson even, mm-hmm. uh, just because he distributes the puck really well. I'm not sure if I disagree with that sentiment either. Right. But I think when it comes to fitting the role of the captain, Mark Stone probably fits it the best. For sure. I, I think I'd agree with that. And people, I think, just have a maybe just an auto assumption that, oh, you're the captain. You should be the best player. Yes. A lot of people think that. That's not necessarily the case. Whether it's in hockey, whether it's in sports as a whole, mm-hmm. sometimes your captain isn't your best player, but he's the captain for a reason. Whether it's commanding respect of a locker room, whether it's having high IQ of whatever sport it may be. I'm just going to throw a random name out there because it's the first thing that popped into my head. Al Horford is a captain of a lot of teams that he goes to. I think it's honestly, especially now, more so now than anything, it's the experience Al brings with him. Oh, for sure. You know, sure. Because Al, Al, Al Horford still plays for the Celtics, right? I or, believe so. Well, they got him back, yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure anybody, and I'm going to throw Celtics fans into this equation, would say Al Horford's the best player on that team. I think you'd get to you'd get to about seven, eight names before you get to Al Horford, I think. Yeah. Like, any any team they're playing against, if you picked five of the best players from the Celtics and five from the best of the other team. <laughs> oh, for sure. I'm not even sure he makes that list, to be honest. I don't think he does. But... Al Horford. Not now, at least. Al, Al used to Yeah, be back in the day, absolutely. But now, yeah, definitely not now. But right. as we said, Al Horford's not the best. But he's a guy that's been, in a sense, a world traveler when it comes to the NBA. And he's this is a guy that's seen quite a lot. And it's a guy that brings that experience, especially in the postseason, where – Maybe some of your younger guys don't have that. Maybe some of your newer guys don't have that. And I think the same can be said here a little bit for Mark Stone. Mm -hmm. It's a guy that has experience outside of Vegas that can bring that experience to Vegas. He's now got some experience with the Golden Knights, and he's the one that can hit the reset button and say, no, we're not playing right. We need to fix this. And it's one thing for someone like Pete DeBoer to say it. Mm Mm-hmm it's a whole nother thing for somebody like Mark Stone to say it. Which is the reason why he wanted to go ahead and, and still name Mark Stone the captain, even though uh, we already know VGK front office brass didn't want that originally. Um, is, Kelly, is Kelly McCrimmon out the door as well when Pete DeBoer and, and Robin Leonard go, if and when they go? I think he should have been out the door quite a while ago to be, if, if we're keeping it 100%. I think Kelly McCrimmon... While he seems like he's a nice guy, I've never met the guy before, mm-hmm. he's just made way too many questionable decisions for this organization. Do you think he's too hands-on? I think he's too hands-on, and I think he's too concerned about game-to-game. Okay. okay. He doesn't look at the bigger picture. And to this day, I still want an explanation as to why you trade Mark andre Fleury. For what you did, or for what you, I guess you got back in return. Yeah, because you gave him away. Why? why you would, definitely gave him away. You, you trade a guy that is the centerpiece of the franchise. You built around this guy in the expansion draft. He's giving you nothing to prove otherwise that he had deteriorated in performance. He was still sure he had his off games here and there, but every goalie in the NHL does. Mark Andre Fleury at that same 
volume also had a lot of games where he was pitching shutouts, where mm-hmm. he was giving up one goal, where he was putting, giving his team a chance to win. He had a lot more of those games than he had those off games. And you could sit there and you could say, well, maybe it was you know, the whole controversy with his agent and mm-hmm. Pete DeBoer. At the end of the day, you're the general manager. You get to overrule Pete DeBoer. When in that situation, in that instance, it didn't feel like Kel- Kelly McCrimmon was the general manager. It felt like Pete DeBoer was the general manager. And that's where I have the problem, where it felt like Kelly McCrimmon, when the going got tough and the decisions had to be made, he just kind of stood in the background and let other people do it for him. I purposely let that breathe afterwards because we're going to go back to that. And we're going to see how this pans out. And the interesting part is we may not have to wait any further than, like you said, this offseason. We may be able to revisit this conversation this offseason. Um, three straight wins for the Vegas Golden Knights, now sitting at 15-10 and 10 on the season, 30 points. They are still fourth in the Pacific Division. They are two points behind Edmonton, three points behind the Anaheim Ducks, and five points behind Calgary, who they already have a win over this year. Uh, Friday matchup. I don't know why I thought today was Thursday for some reason. Friday night matchup, 7 p.m., the Fortress. The Philadelphia Flyers are in the building. Um, Just another thing that I want to just highlight, mainly because even though it's a Wednesday show and we're moving on and we're moving past it, I do just think it's obviously it's criminal if we are in the middle of NFL's football season and we're not going to discuss the Raiders. Just want to inform you guys, in case you guys have been living under a rock, the Raiders are 6-6 six and six on the season. Only 1-2 and two in the AFC West. They are 4-3 and three overall in the AFC. They are hosting Patrick Mahomes and that bad Kansas City offense. Um, I wasn't going to ask it, but it just popped in my head, so I'm going to ask because we disagree on this. Give me the final score. 24-21 Kansas City. Closer than the people think. You guys are going to be so mad at me. I'm going to go 38-16. Casey. I don't think this was close, bro. I don't think this was close at all. Three touchdowns may seem like a lot, so maybe I shouldn't do that. But I told you on Monday, and I'm pretty sure that, like, I'm going to stick with it. Two touchdown minimum. Where have we heard this one before? <laughs> Where have we seen this type of situation oh for, the, for the Raiders before? Mm-hmm. Oh, you said for the Raiders. See, and this, this has happened again. Because what I was going to say was we're going to know by the end of the first quarter. I thought you were talking about the Air Force game again. No. Because I texted you after Air Force scored the second touchdown and said, okay, we know we know what the answer is already. But you're talking about just the Raiders. Um, Ah, man. We d- we just saw it w- with the Raiders in, on Thanksgiving Day. And I was on the opposite end of that. Everybody said that team. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm moving. I don't think I'm moving. I don't think I'm moving. I could be wrong. I don't think I'm moving. First two games of the year. Do we know a point spread on that? No, right? Last I saw, this was, I think, on Monday. It was nine and a half. I don't know if it's moved since. She said Raiders. I said Chers. But you look at uh-huh. the first two games. What was the narrative behind the Raiders? Eight and a half now. Say it again. You look at the first two games of the year. Monday night against Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And then on the road to Pittsburgh. Yes. 
people were I think there was a lot of people that were saying that's probably an 0-2 start for the Raiders. They flip the script <laughs> and go 2-0. Yes. Then they say, okay, you certainly they can't do that against Dallas on the road in, in, <laughs> on Thanksgiving nonetheless. Daniel Carlson walks it off with a game-winning field goal. Who, by the way, just got paid. Big shout out to Daniel Carlson. I did hear somebody tell me that. I hadn't, I hadn't looked into it yet, though. But thanks for letting me know. Um, and then now, the narrative is, oh, they got, they got no chance to get Kansas City. <laughs> I'm on that boat, man. I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure if they can win the game outright. But nine and a half, eight and a half, seven and a half. I'd be very tempted to lean on the side of the Raiders because I think it's a game they can keep close for a lot of reasons. One in particular, they remember what happened just about a month ago. Yep, 41-14. At Allegiant. On Sunday Night Football, nonetheless. I think there's going to be a little bit of revenge tour here for the Raiders. They're going to want to send a message that they might be down, but they're certainly not out. And... Part of this is is um is, is part of this discussion is going to be just psyche based. You can't let Patrick Mahomes have the swagger of leaving Allegiant Stadium two and zero, right? Right. Obviously, if it happens at two and zero, you can't let it happen at three and zero. You can't let it happen at four and zero. But at some point, you have to give Patrick Mahomes a loss in Allegiant Stadium, and I would assume the sooner the better. Well, it's, they're going to have to wait till next year for that. Yeah. Because well. See, the thing is, though, and well, because oh, I just said that, huh? I don't know why I thought it was home for some reason. Sorry, scratch all of that. He's already 2 0 at Allegiant. You don't want him to go 2 0 against you guys already or again this season. The interesting part is anytime you talk about the Raiders and in the, in the, in the Chiefs, you're going to talk about quarterback play. And I don't think anybody puts Patrick Mahomes and Derek Carr in the same stratosphere. And I'll leave it there. The reason why I'll leave it open-ended is because if I was to say that the people that are putting them in the same stratosphere aren't so off, people would look at me like I'm nuts. I stand by that meaning that it says more about Derek Carr and less about Patrick Mahomes. Point proven, 6-0 and when he throws for 300-plus, 0-6 when he doesn't. This team moves as Derek Carr moves. We thought this team moved as John Gruden moved. And we found out that it wasn't true. Right. And I don't think that's being talked about enough. We have a little bit more time to talk about it. Um, I, I said I was supposed to do the pick em update, but because we had basketball and then hockey, I didn't get that finalized. I didn't want to rush it and give you guys a bad count. So um, let's just go ahead and move on to expected news. I think that's the right way I want I want to encompass this expected news. I have right here MLS to Vegas with a question mark. And obviously we already know that the Las Vegas lights are out here playing in the USL championship. And somebody asked me today if I thought the Oakland A's were coming to Vegas (laughs) and I laughed and I have been about as blunt as I can be when it comes to that. No, nah, Mm-mm. Not yet. And oh. I don't know how many other ways I could tell people. No. Las Vegas is being used as a hub to hold the city of Oakland to the fire. 
that's all it is. So they're going to hold Oakland to, to the fire. They're going to get a new stadium. And you and me discussed it. Then they're going to strip the entire team. And they're going to rebuild it. And they're already going to have a beautiful new stadium to do so in. I.e. Miami Marlins. That's what we're going to see. That's what we're going to see. So I say that to say this move, even though I have a question mark here, it won't be one for much longer. We're going to get Major League Soccer here in Vegas to that you say what? I'm not surprised. I don't think any of us are. I think MLS coming to Vegas just adds to the sports market already, and it puts a little more validity behind the fact that Vegas can be a a legitimate sports market, and it puts even more pressure now down on the NBA. Yes. The clock continues to tick on the NBA as to what's the holdout. Especially when you look at the potential cities for the NBA that they would consider either expanding to or uh, moving teams to, Mm -hmm. Seattle is still ranked ahead of Las Vegas. Yep. Keep in mind, Seattle's had a basketball team already. Mm -hmm. They're not there anymore. Yeah. Good point. I don't, and people will say, say, oh, well, you just have to give Seattle a second chance. Maybe you do. I think I think I think they'll they'll get one mainly because of how many people in the league are, are vouching for it. But at that same time, you're going to give Seattle a second chance without giving Vegas a first. Considering you're already watching what the Aces are doing, the Raiders are doing, and, and the lights are doing, and there's a reason why I brought up the lights, and we'll get to that in, in two seconds. Like, let's not forget, like, for those that forget that Vegas is a pretty big basketball town, you've got all these college basketball tournaments that come. You've got the summer league that's hosted here, USA basketball. The list goes on, and you look at Vegas as a whole when it comes to a sports market. You have an NFL team here. You have a WNBA team here. You have an NHL team. You have a minor league baseball team that draws a really good crowd almost every night. Best ballpark in minor league baseball easily. And so I, I think if the logistics work out for MLS, I think it can work. My que- a, a couple questions would be, one, do they get their own stadium? Two, if they don't, who's going who's gonna to sacrifice stadium space for, to accommodate the team? Because it's, you're, you're probably looking at maybe Cashman. I don't think Supreme Allegiant. Supreme renovations if you do Cashman. Or do you throw a wild card out there? Do you introduce the idea of Sam Boyd? Interesting. Because, because I, I have completely ruled out Sam Boyd. Sam Boyd didn't even cross my mind. The ballpark did. Are you sure the aviators are okay with that? I am not sure about anything. I have not talked to Don Logan about it. I just know Don Logan. And where there's a chance to make a money play, if it's obviously not going to 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 ruin uh, what he already has going, Don Logan is absolutely about pushing forward. So that's where my my mention of Don Logan came from. To answer your question about what am I sure that the Aviators would do it? No, I'm about fifty fifty on it, and that's only because of my brain. Haven't talked to anybody about it. You bringing up Sam Boyd, I think that's the perfect spot. I really do, because Sam Boyd's not being used right now. They wouldn't have to worry about sharing the space with any other team. 
much like they would have to worry about with either going to Cashman sharing it with the lights, right. or they go to Allegiant sharing it with the aviators. I mean, Raiders. Um, Allegiant with the Raiders, yeah. Ballpark, Ballpark with the with aviators. The aviators. Um, it would be a, a facility completely to themselves. And and they can make it their own. That was going to be the other point, is if they use Sam Boyd, I think whether it's the MLS team itself, whether it's the city, whether it's a combination of just ownership or whatever the case may be, you have to do some massive, and I mean massive renovations to Sam Boyd. That place is in way overdue of a renovation. Right. If you walk around Sam Boyd, you'll understand why. We've been on the roof at Sam Boyd, and I'm afraid of heights. And that is my witness. I've walked out there, and that's probably one of the most timid you guys will ever see me. I, I do not feel safe on Sam Boyd's roof. <laughs> Absolutely not. Like, if you walk around the concourse, walk into the facilities, it, 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 Sam Boyd looks the same it, that it did when it first opened its doors, and it literally hasn't changed since. Those those aerial shots, like you said, of when they were building it, it, it is kind of scary, but it is the exact same stadium. Nothing's changed. I mean, the fans are literally parking in a dirt lot. <laughs> There's not even a pavement lot unless you vouch for the, you know, premium parking, which is towards the front of the stadium. Then, and even in. Yeah. Mo- the general <laughs> parking, they have them parking in a, a dirt lot. That I would like to see paved. And along with a, a laundry list of other renovations. But see, the thing is, the the renovation ideas that you're giving them now would help with the issues that UNLV football had when they were there. Right. We're media, and we already leave after everybody else is gone, press conferences, and it took us at least 10 minutes to get out of the parking lot. Yeah. And that's a good night. Like, so keep in mind, guys, we're leaving 30 minutes to 45 minutes, maybe even an hour after the game is over, Mm -hmm. and it's taking us 10 to 15 minutes to still get out. I wonder what a regular patron is dealing with on the way out of Sam Boy. That's 30 minutes of probably you just sitting in your car. Yeah. Well, I'm and not doing that. It's crazy. I mean, regardless, Sam Boyd needs its renovations. For sure. But it was kind of brought up in passing probably a couple months ago. And when I heard it, I said, you're absolutely right. UNLV should have stayed at Sam Boyd and just did a complete overhaul of Sam Boyd. Re- I mean, renovated that thing to the nine. Because for how the team is playing, yeah. I don't know if we can justify them playing in the Legion Stadium. I don't even know if it's about justification, though, for the program. I think the, no matter what renovations you were going to do to Sam Boyd, it's going to fall a, a notch lower than what Allegiant Stadium provides. And I think what what I, I have gone on record saying before, and I can't wait to actually talk to somebody from the Raiders to just see what, what their response to it is, Um. I feel like the Raiders might give me an honest answer about this. I really do. But I have said this before. A lot of people may not may not take heed to this. And I, I get it. I understand it's the Al Davis Memorial Torch. Trust me. I was in L.A. when the Rams and USC played at the Coliseum. You couldn't tell the difference in terms of the stands from who was on the field. And I say that because 
USC and the Rams would host things together. And that's not what we're seeing from the Raiders and UNLV. And I think it's it's, it's easy to look at stuff in hindsight and say, oh, well, that's what, that's what, went, that's what went on. Even though we're going to do that now, we saw it in the moment. We saw how hard Tony Sanchez had to fight to get the team to play in Allegiant Stadium. Only for him to never coach a game there. The Raiders never wanted UNLV in their stadium. And I don't even think they had to say a word about it for the for the for that perception to be let out. I mean, take a tour of Allegiant Stadium. Tell me how many red walls there are in the entire building. I don't think they have one. Out uh UNLV's locker room. That is the only red wall in the entire place. It's also the only place in the building that has anything UNLV on it. Not even the concession stands, not even the merchandise stands. None of it has UNLV. And there's two silver, uh, there's two silver and black Raider stores on, on at Allegiant Stadium, at the very least. And I've toured Allegiant Stadium a couple times. Well, not literally toured, but roamed around Allegiant Stadium a, a handful of times. And... I've seen multiple Raider stores and still have yet to see anything UNLV memorabilia. The only thing that I've seen when it comes to UNLV memorabilia at Legion Stadium is like a little, almost like a pop-up shop, if you will, okay. of some hats and maybe a couple shirts. And that's exactly what it is, the pop-up shop. They do that game by game, probably. And it's prob- it, it looks like one of those that it, it would be used for the Raiders on their game days. They converted over to a UNLV shop. They probably brought in a lot of the equipment from or the gear from you know UNLV athletics they said here sell this during the game and that was about the extent of that agreement now i'm glad you brought up tony sanchez mm-hmm. when it came to allegiant stadium do you remember before last season mm-hmm. that there was a time in the off season it wasn't a complete guarantee UNLV was going to play all its home games at Allegiant. Yes, I do remember that. There were some serious contract negotiations that UNLV might have to go play another game at Sam Boyd. After they already had the finale. <laughs> but wait, 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 wait. Hold on, but before that, <laughs> Real Madrid had a game scheduled in Allegiant Stadium. Mm-hmm. And Garth Brooks had a show scheduled in Allegiant Stadium. And they were telling UNLV that they would have to move their season opener. Well, not even their season opener, their home opener, because they opened on the road at UNR. That was our intro into last season. What did we say about the stories writing themselves? Um, three other things to get to, guys, and then we're going to get out of here. I Well, I guess I say three topics, and then we'll get to my dad's tip in. Then we'll get out of here. Uh, the first two are probably going to be pretty quick. Mainly because the first one is the International Boxing Hall of Fame has announced their 2022 class. Once again, this is the International Boxing Hall of Fame. I don't remember the last time a Hall of Fame hit me. Th- eh, I should say boxing because definitely the the class of Kevin Garnett, Rudy Tomjanovich, Tim Duncan, and Kobe Bryant is is unbelievable. And I know I'm missing somebody else in that list. Uh, Cheryl Swoops was on that one, was she not? Mm-hmm. Cheryl Swoops was in that Hall of Fame class. Um, and I'm, I'm still missing somebody else. That class was amazing. 
That class is downright insane. That might be the best Hall of Fame class in history. Um, but this one is pretty high up there because we have Roy Jones Jr., Miguel Cotto, James Tony, Holly Holm, Regina Hamlish, Bob Kaplan, Ray Borges, Borges. Sorry about that. Ray Borges and Bob Yalen are all going to be inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame next year. Um you guys know how I feel about Roy. You guys know how I feel about Roy Jones. Roy Jones is the only boxer I've ever cried over. Like when when Roy uh, got knocked over, he got knocked out by Antonio Tarver. I remember vividly that night I cried because I told my dad I was like I don't know if Roy will ever be the same. Um, so you guys know how I feel about Roy. Uh, you guys know that um, shots of Vanessa McConnell, who is my one of my entries, I should say, to Roy Jones and his camp and, and Roy Jones promotion. And and obviously they had an, an event two years ago, I believe it was, here on campus. And me and Roy kind of had a, a, an opportunity to talk then and and kind of just share some uh, fan moments with him. That was that was kind of dope to get the opportunity to do. And um, I, I guess you guys will obviously know that I have a, a unique tie to this particular class for various reasons. So Without giving you guys too much anything, we'll see if we can work something out over the next year or two and, and see if we can get a – well, I guess year in, in – what is this? Year in 23 days? Uh, see if we can get something together with, with that camp over there. Another thing interesting to note, new head coach for Team USA for the women's senior team, and that new head coach is Cheryl Reeves. Cheryl Reeves, who is currently the coach of the Minnesota Lynx, uh, she's a three-time coach of the year. She's a four-time WNBA champion, uh, former executive of the year. I, I mean, we, we've talked about it before, and I think the way that – and Duna said it before. Shout out to Deontay Hagler. He tweeted, uh, can this – I think it was last year's team or this past uh, summer's team – can this women's uh, Team USA roster get a nickname? And – I'm with Duna. <laughs> when you look at what Team USA has been able to produce on the women's side of the basketball, I understand what Team USA is as a whole and how everybody wants to talk about what the Dream Team did, what the Redeem Team did. The run that this women's basketball team is in the middle of is now tied for the greatest run in Olympic history. And Cheryl Reeves is going to be taking over there. So uh, maybe we'll get to my dad's tipping because I, I don't I don't know how long this last topic is going to run. And even though we're ending somewhat on a somber note, I feel it's necessary to have this conversation. And mainly because we're we're not even sure what we're taking away from the conversation. We're just simply going to have it. Um, so let's talk about my dad's tipping really quick. My dad's tipping said it's the feel good story of the day. And he said after a near-fatal car accident that left fans wondering would he ever walk again, let alone play again, Tiger Woods will make his pro golf return next week to the PNC Championship. The 36-hole event starts December 18th. The exciting part about this story is that even though Tiger is nearing the end of his illustrious career, we may be seeing just the beginning of another, of another Tiger Woods that stakes his claim to the golf world. Tiger will be playing in his or excuse me, we'll be playing with his 12-year-old son, Charlie. Ironically, the last time Tiger played competitively before his February 23rd car accident was last year at the, P at the PNC Championship with his son, Charlie, as well, where they finished seventh. Better luck this year, Tiger and Little Tiger. 
Glad to see you back. Uh, wait, 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 where's that? Glad to see you back. Okay, glad to see you back with what with what may be the future of golf. And this is something that I did not know and I did not read until this. Dad, that is nuts, bro. And I might want to, I kind of want to end the show close to this. Uh, my dad said on a side note, he said, rest in peace to the 2021 Kentucky Derby winner Medina Spirit, who at three years old collapsed and suffered a heart attack after a workout Monday morning. Um, wow. Rest in peace to Medina Spirit. Uh, prayers to the trainer, prayers to the owner, prayers to the family. Um, yeah, man, I didn't know. I'm not even going to lie. I just found that out live on air, guys. I apologize. Um, uh, sheesh, I don't even know where to go from here. Me and my dad, you guys are, are very aware, um, in case if, you, if you're, if you're consistent listeners to this show, uh, me and my dad, we bonded a lot growing up over hollywood park which is why i'm a firm believer i tell anybody i tell the, the people who built so far that's perfectly fine i tell stan Kroenke if i need to uh i didn't want so far there i didn't as a person who's from inglewood california i didn't want so far in the heart of inglewood and a lot of people was wondering why and i said it's because of hollywood park that's the oldest thing there. That's what you're going to have to blow. So me and my dad, whether we were beefing, we would go to Hollywood Park and we would just sit there and not say a word to each other. Whether we were beefing with his wife at the time and, and my girlfriend at the time, we would go there to get our get our minds away from whatever was going on at home. And uh, we went there the day before they, they uh, did the explosion at Hollywood Park. And we drove around it. We talked. We had just like one of those moments. And it makes you realize it's something that we did since I was a kid. So it's something that we had over 20 years of experience doing, and it was no longer. And that's why, for whatever it's worth, uh, I understand it may seem like a joke considering how hectic that area of Inglewood is uh, outside of the stadium for it to be that late and for everybody to say, oh, it's Lake Inglewood, Lake Inglewood. And I heard a lot of uh, not-so-great remarks, not-so-encouraging remarks about that lake. And as a like I tell anybody who will listen, as a person who did not want the stadium near as a whole, that lake is important. And most people are like, why is that important? Because if you know anything about Hollywood Park, it's known as the racetrack with the lake. Just another way to to keep Hollywood Park's legacy alive. So. Yeah, that Medina Spirit news is is interesting to me. I didn't know that. Um, Dad, thank you for that tip in. This one, uh, and and now that I look at it, Matt, I, I saved that story this morning. So I'm not sure if it was still proper. Let me read the first one. Okay. This is the CBS story. And this is the Channel 4 story from... New Orleans. All right. Or it's from Alabama. Excuse me. Okay, cool. So in case you guys are unfamiliar, uh, former NFL player Glenn Foster Jr. Uh, has been pronounced or was pronounced dead. Excuse me, guys, for, for the way that I um, offered that information, mainly because this is some information that's still relatively new to us. This happened, I believe, yesterday. Mm -hmm. What's today? Uh, Wednesday. Wednesday, two days ago, Monday. 
Um, he was pronounced dead on Monday, and this is the reason why I'm, I'm still trying to work through the kinks. Me and Matt was even talking about it before the show went live, how we were going to uh, relay this information, mainly because there's no solid information. And I think that's what makes this story so weird. So let me get kind of right into it. The story that we were uh, originally given on Monday, I believe, was that Glenn Foster was pronounced, Glenn, Glenn Foster Jr., excuse me, was pronounced dead uh, on Monday in Alabama after being arrested on Saturday, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. Saturday. This is where the story gets weird, guys. They said that Glenn Foster had a fight in jail, had a situation. That's all we heard about that originally on Monday. We heard that he was released on Sunday and that he was pronounced dead on Monday. Here's where the eyebrows get in the ears get raised for me. When I noticed that he was arrested Saturday, released on Sunday, died on Monday, I said, all of this is, is confirmable. It's easy to confirm all of these different things. The coroner wouldn't confirm two things. Where they found him and when he died. Which made me go, huh. There's a report somewhere with it. Fast forward to this morning, me and Matt have literally looked, we're looking at Channel 4 right now, we're looking at ESPN, I got CBS up on my phone, and now we can't see anything anywhere about Glenn Foster being released on Sunday. It's like that news never existed. I didn't pull that out of osmosis. Glenn Foster was a husband. He was a father of two. He was 31 years of age. Now, oddly enough, I hate endings, ending shows like this, but I didn't want to start the show with it because I probably wasn't going to finish the show. But we've seen situations like this before where police will release somebody from prison, jail, whatever the case may be, and rather than let that person walk freely like they're supposed to do, they opt to take them to wherever their destination is, only for that person never to make it to their destination. We've seen it happen. 90% of the time we see it happen with women, specifically black women. I don't know, and this is the weird part because now there's no way to really pinpoint where we saw it. Whoever, the person, the people, the entities, whatever the case may be, that's responsible for trying to backtrack on what we read on Monday, I just want them to know that we saw it. You guys told us that you released Glenn Foster on Sunday. How did he die on Monday in you guys' hands? I will say this about this story. I think within a week's time, a week from, we'll, I'll even be generous and say a week from today. 
So by next Wednesday, we will have a whole lot more answers to this story than we have today. Because to your point, it's not that hard to go back and look at records. You, you'll be able to see exactly when on record Glenn, uh, was it? Glenn Foster Jr. Glenn Foster yeah. um, was released from prison. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that the coroner hasn't released where and how he died, I can tell you right now, having family ties within law enforcement, the coroner's office knows by now. 100%. They 100% know. They're just not willing to release the information for maybe one to mo- either one or multiple reasons. One could be that they haven't notified all of uh, Glenn Foster's uh, loved ones yet to obviously confirm that he did in fact die and of re- of the cause of death and all that. That could be a very valid reason, but it could also be because they know if the information is released, it is not going to look good. And what caught my attention with the story was seeing a headline from ESPN Today. And the headline read, former NFL player dies in police custody. So I think while we're getting conflicting stories, the second that the jail records are released, the second that the uh, coroner's report is released, we're going to have quite a bit of answers as to exactly what happened. And how it happened. Last question for you, and I, and, I, and we can end the show. Uh, the two reasons that you hit the coroner probably would not want to give that information. Is that something that they would take upon themselves to not give? Or they're obviously, or would they be answered from like a higher up? I'm going to say that's co- probably coming from a higher up. It could even be coming from law enforcement directly. Because, again, it's information that law enforcement themselves can question or they can ask about at any point. They don't. As long as they have a, a certain level of clearance, they call it, they can ask just about anything, particularly if they're involved with the case directly. They can ask, you know, do you know such and such about someone? The public probably won't be allowed to know, but that person, mm-hmm. if they have a certain level of clearance, can. And so right now I think there are, are at least a few people that know the exact way that Glenn Foster passed away. They know exactly what time it happened, and they can confirm or they can deny if he was still within police custody at that time. And if he is, that's, that opens up a whole new can of worms. If he's not, it become, I don't know if we have quite as many questions answered because then the new set of questions comes up as to, okay, hypothetically speaking, let's say he was released on Sunday mm-hmm. or Saturday, even Saturday or Sunday, and he, he was pronounced dead or, you know, the coroner determined he died some point at some point on Monday. Right. There is about a 12 to 24 hour window you have to account for. That's where those set of questions then start forming as to what happened from the time he was released mm-hmm. to the time that the coroner estimated that he passed away. <clears throat> if he's in police custody, it's a lot easier to answer those questions. It is a lot think. easier. You would think. Because if he's in police custody, you would think that, okay, he's somewhere, A, in the you know jailing facility, so it's a lot easier to keep track of where he is, you know the schedule, 
you can narrow it down pretty to a pretty finite point. If he's released and he's out on his own, your guess is almost as good as mine. I mean, you would have to do some serious investigating to see where did this guy go? Right. What happened? Who found him? Who found him and who was responsible for it? Because there was probably somebody out there, whether it's in his own inner circle, whether it's somebody that knows of Glenn Foster that wanted something to happen to Glenn Foster and they knew about the time he was going to get out. Mm-hmm. That all kind of falls into those set of questions that you have to kind of, they call it recreating the picture, recreating the crime in a sense, to better understand what happened, the motive behind it, and exactly what led to what to what led to this, that led to that. So, um, again, rest in peace to Glenn Foster. And yeah. one of the things that come to mind right now is uh, Sandra Bland's mugshot. And how everybody would say that that uh, she was already deceased in her mugshot, and for people that that still kind of don't believe that, I think obviously it's been proven. But a um, couple different things, aside from the fact that you could see straight up Sandra Bland's nose, as a person with locks, you guys can see my locks are braided right now. One of them is actually coming apart. I should t- actually take it apart right now because I need to do it anyway. But this braid is literally three locks. So actually it's four locks. So it's pretty obvious what, what, what the locks do. The locks sit on top of your head. Locks don't flow backwards unless you have your hair tied up. And Sandra Bland's hair was obviously laying back. And then the worst come to worst, which I thought was very, very interesting. The reason why they knew that Sandra Bland was deceased is because when they went throughout that hall, though that, uh, that jail, they went throughout every hall, every nook and cranny. The background of Sandra Bland's picture is gray. Every wall in that prison is tan. The floors are gray. Until next time, guys.